you have your Bibles and would like to open up to Matthew chapter 6, we're continuing in our series on the, the prayers uh, in the book of Matthew, prayer in the book of Matthew, your kingdom come. And, uh, and today we have one of the most familiar passages um, in the world, in the Lord's Prayer. I was looking forward to spending some time with you. But um, rather than just reading it, um, I'm going to have us once again stand and quote it together, since there are different variations that everybody has might have learned a uh, time or two different words. I've got, went ahead and put it on the screen for us to quote together. And uh, in doing so, it's a good reminder that one of the things about the Lord's Prayer, and since Jesus taught it to us to pray in this pattern, uh, he's uh, invited us to the communion of the saints, to, to participate in what the church has prayed for over 2,000 years and uh, in, in various forms. And, uh, and even going back to the Didache, the uh, early church writings of how the church should be structured, uh, dating to the second century uh, of just how these words have been brought into the liturgy of the local churches throughout history. And so when we say these words... We want to, one, we're, we're saying words that Jesus gave us as a pattern, and we'll get into that a little bit. We're also saying words that have resounded throughout the centuries, and our voice is joining the choir of a prayer to our Father uh, that we collectively identify as the universal church. So would you stand with me, and we'll read this together. <clears throat> our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we... Go to Matthew six. Um, you know, and last week we we were we started the the Lord's prayer. It says, "Don't be like the hypocrites. Uh, don't uh, pretend. Don't use vain repetition." But in rather, Jesus says, "Pray then like this." And He's given us a a pattern for prayer. So it is good to recite these words, uh, but it's also good to remember that this isn't a magical formula. Um, it is a pattern of prayer. And that as these words have meaning to us and we recite them and pray them, uh, they are powerful and effective. But if they just simply become a tradition, uh, rote words that we just repeat just because that's what we're accustomed to, they become meaningless. And sometimes familiarity does often lead us to neglecting the importance of what is actually being done. And so some churches in the Christian tradition have neglected praying this prayer uh, regularly or whenever just to separate from other traditions who maybe pray it um, out of just tradition. And uh, so there's been some, some controversy in there, but it is good for us to remember that it is good, but it's also good to see that it is a, it's a pattern of prayer. Jesus said, like this. This is a sample prayer. It's a short prayer that gives us some, some categories to think through of how we can pray and, uh, and come to our Father and um, my prayer has always been an interesting uh, aspect of the faith for me. Like uh, throughout the years, I, I oftentimes just come and I'm just, I don't know how to pray. Uh, over and over, it doesn't matter how many classes or how much I've read or whatever research or what book I've done, there's just times I'm just sitting there like, 
I don't know how to pray right now. I don't know what to pray. And I'm thankful that the Bible does give us promises that even when we don't have words, the Holy Spirit is interpreting our heart to the Father for us and praying on our behalf. Uh, but whenever we're at a loss for words on how to pray, it's always good to go to the scriptures and see the prayers that are in scriptures and pattern our prayers off of that. And so the Lord's Prayer is an excellent prayer for this. But the, the Westminster Larger Catechism summarizes the Lord's Prayer this statement here it says the lord's prayer is not only for direction as a pattern according to which we are, are to make our other prayers but may also be used as a prayer so that it may be done with understanding faith reverence and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer so it is a, a partition as a both and we can repeat it um, but we can also pattern our prayers off of it and so part of the pattern it starts here with the, uh, the relational aspect of the prayer, that this is a prayer to our Father, our Father in heaven. Uh, <clears throat> what a very significant statement this is. So in, uh, in the Old Testament, God was referred to as Father only 15 times in the entire Old Testament, 39 books spanning almost 1,500 years. And only 15 times is God referred to as Father, and only, I think, two of those times is it uh, in a relational sense and more of a corporate, it, the Father of Israel. Um, but when Jesus entered the scene, he used Father 165 times. Um, huge difference. And he revolutionized the way we perceive God and inviting us into a relationship with the Father through his work. And it starts with the our father. It's a recognition of a possession, a relationship, a, a longing. Um, and, uh, and so there, and it's also corporate, like as a, it's a church. All those who believe in Jesus Christ can equally claim the our father. That there is a, an ownership, there's a, a relationship, there's a, um, a correlation there. So it's both personal and corporate. And uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 8.15, says, We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And he also talks about Abba, Father in Galatians 4.6, that we can call out in a familiar, a family, almost daddy aspect, God is our loving Father, a Father that we can go to any time we want. And, uh, and children have access to their dads uh, anytime, right? And kids will go and interrupt or, or, or talk to and just go to their dad, um, in a, especially in a, in a healthy relationship. When a child knows they are cared for and adored, they will run to their father at any moment, anytime, right? Um, and, uh, and so this is the, the picture that he has for us with our Heavenly Father, that he is the, the dad who is kind, caring, compassionate, constantly there and available that we can run to whenever we want and uh, and cry out to him. Psalm one hundred three thirteen says, "As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him." And uh, and so it is again that that compassionate God that He is approachable, that He is available, and that He is a constant uh, in our lives. But it's good to remember that uh, it is through. The, the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work on the cross and our faith in him that opens the door for us to come to God as our father. John 1, 12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
John 1, 12 is a good reminder for us that not every human being is a child of God. Every human being is the creation of God, created in the image of God, and therefore there's sanctity to life and value to each person. Uh, but those who are in a right relationship with Jesus have access to be adopted into the family of God and are called the children of God. And so this relational aspect of Father, but also remember that he's our Father in heaven, that we pause and distinguish the, the right posture. When I'm coming to my, my Father in heaven, it's a reminder that he is God and I am not, that there is an otherness, there's a respect to who he is. Again, in Psalm 103, it says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He is the God of heaven. Uh, Psalm 33, 13, 14 says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out into the inhabitants of all the earth. Uh, so he is God in heaven that, uh, and I am not. And so posturing ourselves in prayer uh, is, is a good reminder of how do I settle my heart, settle my mind. Sometimes I go to prayer in angst or in frustration, and I start in one direction, and I have to remind myself, wait, I'm not just talking to a friend. Um, I'm talking to a, my God, who through his son has provided a way for me to be adopted into his family and call me his friend, but there's a reverence there. There has to be a distinction. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.2, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. What a, what a good reminder. Let, let our words be few in reverence to God. That, uh, that doesn't mean we can't talk to God a lot and we can't um, express ourselves. But we, this is also a reminder of not to get caught up in vain repetitions and just think because we say a long prayer that it's more important or better than a short prayer. Uh, God knows our heart. God knows our intention. So when we come to him with the right posture, that one, it's relational, uh, but he is other than he is in heaven and he is God. So our father in heaven is the relational beginning to it. I would like to just say that anytime we talk about a prayer, a prayer is a conversation we are having with God. Prayer is not intended to change God or change God's mind about things. Prayer is an opportunity for us to engage God in our hearts and be transformed by his work in our life, by his word, by his spirit. And so when we come to God in prayer, we want to recognize that it's to be transformative. So it's a relational conversation we have, we're having with our Father, but it should be transforming who we are that when I approach God in prayer, I come to him with all my baggage, with all my struggles, with all my incorrect thinking, with my sinfulness, and my limited perspective. But I'm coming to a Father in heaven who sees all, knows all, and it is to transform how I think about him and how I think about me and how I think about others and should do a work in my heart to transform us. As uh, Romans 12, 2 says, to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. Well, we renew our mind through the word of God and through our conversations with God. And, uh, and so we want to come to him in this prayer. And the first petition of the, the Lord's Prayer here is, hallowed be your name. And as I first approached this, I, and I would pray, it's just, it was the, the time for the adoration or the worship of God and just to, to make a statement of God is holy, which is true. 
and to validate that, recognize that, declare that is a good practice. But here it's, the sense here is, make your name hallowed in my heart. This is a God do a work in me that sanctifies your name in my heart and in my mind. Uh, I'm engaging prayer to my Father saying, help me reverence you more. Help me recognize your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, the, the, who you are in my heart. Give me a desire for you that I don't have, that I want. I, I want to lean into that, but I need you to do a work in me to help me see you more clearly. The one thing that God promises throughout Scripture is if we desire to know more about him, he will give us more of him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If there's one prayer we can have confidence is, is if I pray, God, I want to see you more clearly, he will reveal himself more clearly to us through his word, through prayer, and through his people. And so we're crying out this, this transformative prayer, do this work in me. And I thought of the passage that is used a lot for apologetics or how we defend our faith. But in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. One translation says, but sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. Set apart Christ in your heart. This hallowed be your name is the same essence. Sanctify your name in my heart. Let me have more reverence for you. Let me have more love for you. See, the, the thing is, is when we come to worship in God and then we struggle with sin, uh, the, we, we have this problem. We desire things of this life more than we desire God. And every time we sin, we're moving our eyes off of our Savior, off of our God, and we're turning it to something else and desiring that more. It becomes an idol that we desire. And so the more we honor Christ in our heart, the more we desire him above all else, the less we will struggle with particular sins. And so it's this transformative shift my desires from myself, from my circumstance, from my sinful desires, and place them on you. Help me be transformed in my heart. Jesus gave another example of this prayer uh, and on how to set God apart in our heart in, in John 12, 28. It says, Father, glorify your name. He just says a simple prayer. God, Father, glorify your name. Let your name be known. And, uh, and then it says, then a voice from heaven came. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God is unlike any other person. He's, he is God. He's other than. Um, and when God glorifies his name, it's not um, a prideful, selfish thing that, that belittles others and takes away from others. So if I want to try to make myself look better and I want to glorify my name, I'm, I'm trying to get accolades and, uh, and set myself apart from others uh, for a purpose of pride. Uh, but when God is glorified, it benefits everybody. When we see God more clearly, uh, he removes things from our lives um, that hinder us from the fullest joy and the best expression of our, of our life. So uh, when those who pursue happiness in this life, that's all they want, the hedonists that just want to get pleasure and do for themselves, what they don't realize often is they're, what they're claiming as joy and happiness is actually causing 
a, a disruption, dissatisfaction, uh, depressions, and further anxieties, uh, and it's a constant pursuit of, of a pleasure that is, is uh, self-destructive. But when we turn our attention, we pursue God, we see that we get him, we get holiness, and we get true joy and happiness in life. And, uh, and so this is that, that transformative work to glorify God's name. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and uh, I lost my place. Okay, there we go. So the kingdom will of God. This is God's reign, God's sovereignty, God's control in life, in the, in the world. And praying that for God's kingdom to come. Praying, God, do your work. May your redemptive plan continue on. May your son return in our context as we pray this, that God uh, come back again. I want your kingdom to be established here on earth as it is in heaven, as you are in control of all things in heaven. Uh, as Christians, we live in a uh, already, not yet. God's kingdom has been established uh, in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the last days have begun. Jesus has won the victory we have adoption and forgiveness of sins and justifications and invitation into um, his family, and we have a hope for eternity. Um, it's already present, as we say in youth group, life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. It starts now. There is life now. God's reign is now in our lives and, in, um, and, and will continue on. However, it's already, but it's not yet. It's, we don't have the fullest expression. There's still sin in this world. There's still cancer. There's still death. Uh, there's still war and fighting. There's still injustice happening. Um, and God promises one day he will come back and put an end to all of that. And, uh, and for eternity, there will be peace. But we live in this tension of the, the already, not yet. So we pray, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Again, uh, Romans 12, 2, when it says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, uh, but be, re be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, uh, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this challenge, Paul tells us that we don't are re re easily recognize the will of God. Uh, we struggle. Sometimes we put our will in place of God's will, or we'll just follow somebody else's will instead of God's will. Uh, but it is by constantly coming to the scriptures through prayer that our mind, our heart is changed, that we can see God's will and understand what he would have for us. <clears throat> and so what is the will of God? The will of God is to obey uh, him, to know him, to trust him. Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, there's this understanding that coming to, to faith um, is a proclamation of our trust and belief in God, but it is evidenced through the life that we live, obedience. Uh, Paul gives us a few places directly. It says, this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, a heart of gratitude, a proclamation of thanksgiving to who God is, is the will of God for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it says, This is God's will for you, even your sanctification, uh, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
so our sanctification, our set-apartness, the same sense of the word hallowed be your name, setting apart God in our heart, that we are being set apart for God. And then immediately in the passage, Paul's saying uh, that our relationships need to be completely different than the world, that we need to be, that we are sanctified and we live differently. And it can, can, continues on. And there's a few other places that the will of God is made known. So when we come to this in prayer, God, let your kingdom done, be done, come, let your will be done. Help me live according to your word. Help me live out in obedience, and may others live in obedience. And it's a corporate prayer, too, that we pray as, as we come. We think about those in our church. We want to pray for empowerment and strength to live out in obedience um, according to God's command. So it's a, it's a relational prayer. It's a transformative prayer. But it's also a practical prayer. And as we uh, go into this next part, it says, Give us this day our daily bread. And that <clears throat> our daily bread is a good reminder. We come to God one daily. Uh, it should be a, a, a constant prayer. Uh, but it's, it's for the needs of the present, the right now. Uh, our attention oftentimes wanders into the future and wondering how we're going to receive this or that or how we're going to eat tomorrow. And or we tend to have the problem here in America uh, where we're pretty affluent, we have uh, wealth, and, and so we're not actually thinking about tomorrow's meal. If anything, we're thinking about, you know, you know next week when we go grocery shopping or something like that. Like, our needs are, some, are, are, are established, and so sometimes we, we neglect to realize the daily need we f have for God. And so in Exodus 16.4, uh, God talks about how he was going to meet the daily needs of the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. It says... The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. It was a daily provision that they were to go out and just take enough manna for that day, and if they took too much, it says that it would, the, it would spoil, worms would come and, and it would stink immediately, like if they took too, more than they needed to. And God could have just said, you know what, one day a week, I'm just going to send enough manna down. You guys can go gather what you need for the week, and then I'll do it again next week. Um, but this was a daily the exercise in daily provision and daily trust. God will meet my needs. In Psalm 23, verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. Green pastures is not the rolling hills. I forgot I was going to put a picture from Israel up here. Um, but it's not the, the green pastures we have here in Ohio. It's not the lush growth of, of green, thick green grass where the sheep could eat all day long. Uh, green pastures in uh, Israel through, is in a rocky, hard terrain where the shepherd would lead his sheep daily to the next batch of grass so that they could get provision for that day and then lead them to the next batch and then the next batch. And each day, the sheep would trust the shepherd to take them to green pastures so they could eat. All the lush green fields in Israel are used for agriculture, and so they send all the sheep and the goats out into the wilderness to find their, their food. And so this is exercise in daily, daily coming to God uh, for our provisions. So that's another separation we have to have in the way we think is, I always think of just prosperity and abundance 
as the provision of God rather than God will meet my need today and every day that I come to him and I trust him. But James also reminds us that sometimes when we come to prayer, we, we ask and we do not receive because we ask wrongly because we want to spend it on our passion. Sometimes our prayer, we think it's a, a prayer for our daily bread. We think it's a prayer for what we need, but we're praying for our passion that has been misplaced and is off of what God wants for us. And so what is God's passions? What's God's desire for us? We pray for our daily bread. And then in verse 12, he goes, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time on this part because anytime we read a conditional statement in scriptures, it's a, well, what's happening here? Help us to forgive as you have, as we have forgiven. And in the context of Jesus' story in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's preaching this, this is before he has died and before he's buried and before he rose again. And, and so when we, when we see a statement like this, does that mean if I don't forgive someone, God won't forgive me? Um, well, Jesus came to do what we can't do for ourselves. Um, he was the fulfillment that when we come to the law, uh, when we come to something like this, we're like, um, does that mean I'm, I'm headed to hell um, because I'm struggling to forgive? Jesus came to finish the law for us, to fulfill the law for us, and when we believe in him, you know, he rescues us from sin, and he does a transformative work in our lives. So in, in Ephesians 4, it says, be, 432, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. After the resurrection, we have Paul flips it to, as Christ forgave you, seek to forgive others. Um, man, when I, when I think of how much I have wronged Jesus and the sins that I've allowed in my life and how he's forgiven me, now I, I need to turn that forgiveness towards others. How do I think about others and their wrongs against me? And, uh, and, and this statement here isn't saying that in a, in a family sense, he's already said our father, these are children praying to their dad, and it says forgive as I forgive. If The thing is that when we don't forgive others, we don't live in the, in the fullness of the joy of being forgiven by God. We are held back from fully appreciating the forgiveness God has, and uh, the receptors aren't uh, connected as much as they, they have. Any sin a sinner has, uh, a sin a believer has in their life does not take away the relationship it, it disrupts the fellowship and so even those who we are are closest with uh if we have something at odds with them we we can feel a distance even if we're in close proximity to them and i think of one of my buddies from high school uh, i did something um to upset him and i didn't even realize what i did but then for two weeks he didn't even talk to me we were like best friends and and then once he finally told me what was up i could say i'm sorry and and we reconciled through that, but it disrupted our fellowship, even though we we're the closest of friends and we remain close friends to this day. But forgiveness is such an important, important thing that we are called to do. If you want to turn later on in Matthew to 18, we're going to read just a few verses in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Jesus gave a parable of of the importance of forgiving beginning in verse 21 then Peter came and said to him Lord how often will my brother sin against me 
and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the, that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had take, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. This master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In this, this story, there's this concept that God wants us to understand that the relationship with what we have been forgiven, we should, should change the way we perceive our own lives and the way others have treated us to where we pour out forgiveness to others. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. It's a, it's a hard thing uh, to see how this is because if you think of this man... We, we easily can un identify with moving away from one circumstance to another circumstance and how quickly we forget about good things in our lives and we will focus on the negative things. Um, and so we can empathize with, with things here, but there's a debt that this guy could never repay in his life. One commentator says the talent here is like 20 years salary. Um, <clears throat> can't repay that. And saying and pleading, I, I will repay, and it's, it was a generous forgiveness. Um, and then the, the, what he was fighting over was a very small payment. And uh, so when, when we come to our lives and we look at others who have wronged us, how, how do we hold on uh, and anger despite God's generos generosity to me? So, but before we move on from this, it's, I think it's important, one, what is forgiveness? What is what? forgiveness is not and how do we go about growing in forgiving others so first forgiveness is not a feeling uh it's not just i feel like you don't you forgive somebody when you feel like forgiving uh and just because you say i forgive someone doesn't mean you necessarily feel good about what happened uh it's not about it's a it's more of a decision uh of the will to say i'm going to choose to relinquish the right to be angry or to bring this up. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Uh, it's a misnomer. You can't forgive and forget. Um, God is different than us. So in Psalm 103, when he says he chooses not to remember our sins against us, he, he, is, uh, he is God. He knows all things. It's not that he forgot that I lied the other day. It's that he chooses, when I repent of it, he says, I'm not going to hold that against you um, ever again. Uh, but 
we can't, we can't pretend to forget what someone's done against us. So when I say I forgive you, it's, it's not forgetting. It's also not excusing sin or making light of sin. So we're not trying to dismiss what happened in forgiveness. Uh, it is uh, recognizing sin happened and it, it, and it hurts. And it's not removing the demand of justice or the consequence. It's also not removing the temporal consequences of sin. So when we come to God and, 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 and ask for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, and he's talking about our relationship with him and our eternal state. But he's not saying that we don't have earthly consequences in this life because of our sin. Um, and so there is consequences of sin. Also, forgiveness doesn't mean uh, that you trust. Trust takes a lifetime to build and a moment to lose. And it takes time to develop and earn trust back. Uh, and one of my friends, once who was, I was invited into counseling him and his wife, and he had his, um, his addiction to pornography had become found out by his wife and I saw the damage that it had done to their relationship and the harm that it caused her and, uh, and the pain that was there and, and there's always the when someone gets caught doing something there's the I'm sorry uh, but is it I'm sorry that I'm sinning or is it sorry I got caught um, and I knew in this guy's life it went from I'm sorry I got caught to I'm sorry I sinned against you I'm sorry I damaged the trust, I damaged the relationship, I did a disservice to what was happening, because in a conversation with me, not something I said to him, but he said to me, he said, um, my relationship with her is so much more important, uh, I damaged the trust, and I will do anything it takes to earn that trust back. There's no hobby, there's no uh, activity, there's nothing else that I want to do that I'm going to place above, so I'm changing everything. And I watched a very disciplined lifestyle change in his life to say to his wife, I love you and I wronged you and I will never do that again. And by God's grace, and he worked hard for years and to see that their, their marriage uh, remains to this day and over uh, many, many years of seeing God work in his life. But trust, he recognized trust was lost and I have to go above and beyond to earn trust back. There's no, so forgiveness isn't acting like something never happened. Forgiveness doesn't mean we just go back to the way things are. It is work. It's a beginning to something. It's not an end in of itself. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. That's another step and another process. And forgiveness is not restoration. Again, that's beyond. That's the, the process begins internally in our hearts and our conversations with God. And then it begins to extend to the people uh, involved and then through working together, it can lead to uh, the next phase. But it's not these things. When I say I forgive, it's not all these things. Uh, but forgiveness is, and this I uh, borrowed from the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, forgiveness is a promise not to dwell on the incident mentally. We don't talk about it ourselves. Forgiveness is a promise not to bring up the sin again and use it against the other person. We don't talk about it with the sinner in the sense of holding it against him. Forgiveness is a promise not to talk of, to others about the sin. We don't gossip about it. And just a brief word on gossip. 
gossip is um, when I'm telling somebody who doesn't need to know about what's going on. Uh, but if you're struggling with forgiving somebody about an incident and you go to a counselor, a pastor, um, a trusted uh, Christian friend who can help you process the thoughts, uh, as I, I've mentioned to youth group and youth group leaders, when you kind of go up the ladder with information to someone who can help you with it, you're not gossiping about it. But if you're just disseminating information or uh, just trying to spread the word, that's, that's what gossip is. And so forgiveness is, I'm not going to talk about this to others who can't help me process this myself. And then forgiveness is a promise not to let the incident hinder your relationship with the sinner. We promise to work to restore the relationship to what it was prior to the sin. Now, Forgiveness can oftentimes be one-sided. Where I choose to forgive, that doesn't mean that the other person chooses to repent um, or change. And so, uh, what do we do? And so, I do want to make the point that in the Lord's Prayer, in this request to be forgiven from the wrongs that we do, um, uh, and then extend that to others, it's a prayer, it's a work that we do. Never go to a scripture and say, just because it says this, it's just like a quick checklist, well, I prayed for it once and it's done. This is a process, and this can take a lot of time um, and, and working through this. So when we come to a, a struggle in our life or a sin of our own, and we're asking for forgiveness, we're putting it on the altar. God, take this. I'm placing this before you. Forgive me for this. Take this. Don't, I don't want to be here. But it's also when, when someone's wronged us, and we're holding on to that, we, the, for, the first phase of forgiveness we need to come to is between me and God, how can I put this on the altar? How can I stop holding anger, bitterness, resentment inside of me and just between me and God, God I got to forgive this person because it's damaging my relationship with you. It's damaging my relationship with others. Uh, it's, not, it's not other person directed yet. It's just between me and God. God, I got I to gotta put this on the altar and I need to let, let go of this before you and I. Now, I can find that forgiveness, and, and I've had a process. There's been some, some pretty significant things in my life that have taken me a long time to forgive someone for. Um, and, uh, and again, that feeling, it didn't feel like forgiveness, but it was a choosing. I'm not going to, every time I look at him, I'm not going to look at what he did. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look at him as a person. I, I, I don't have to feel like I want to be around him all the time. Uh, but I do want to say I'm not going to be angry against him. Um, and I've gone through the process of forgiveness um, and, and, re and some forms of reconciliation uh, and where I would see someone today that used to have a, a big deal and we can, we can have a coffee, we can have a good conversation, but it's, it's not a restoration yet. It's not back to the way it used to be. Um, but we are good between each other and between God and, um, as far as, and, and others. Um, but because of just the consequences of sins, disruption that can never be fully restored happened, right? Uh, but then I have others in my life who've gone through the whole process. It began with God, I've given this over to you, uh, and then God provided the opportunity for uh, repentance or mutual repentance, uh, recognition, new trust was developed, reconciliation began, and then restoration happened. Um, and these, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel when it all the way goes through. But forgiveness starts with you. Reconciliation takes two or more, however many are involved with that. So, um, so when we come to that, we, it's a prayer. 
a transformative prayer, a relational prayer, a practical prayer, but God, you need to do a work in me so that I can, I can forgive. Now, when we hollow God in our heart and our mind and we reorient our thinking about who God is, who we are, and our life circumstances, it paves the road for forgiveness to happen in our heart. When we, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a daily request. God, help me. Help me in this. And then lastly, he talks about the practicality of temptation. Um, you know, where, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, it is the sense here of uh, not, God's not leading us into, into sin or into temptation. James also tells us, let no one say when they're tempted, they're tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But the imagery, again, of our father, a loving, compassionate, kind father, and leading his child by hand. I think Psalm 23 also gives us a picture of, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. This leading, this, I can trust the hand of God through whatever circumstance, and I don't have to give in to temptation, or I don't have to fear the evil one, because he is with me, he will empower me, and he will deliver me, and it comes back again to am I fixed my eyes on my leader? Am I fixed my eyes on Christ? Uh, or am I looking at my circumstances or my desires or my temptations? So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God promises that no matter what temptation comes up, one, you're not alone in the temptation. Talk to other people about it. Most of the time when we're under temptation, the evil one wants you to think you're unique and weird and nobody will understand you, that if anybody knew you te were tempted in this way, you would be rejected, and, uh, and, and so don't tell anybody. And that's a, that's a demonic lie that we tend to believe. And when we begin to open up and say, hey, I've been tempted in this way, um, we find commonality. There's other people who face the temptations like we do. And all temptation is similar in the same, uh, in, in many of the same patterns that it brings us into. And so talking through it to God and inviting God's people into our temptation helps us overcome it. I do think it's good to know that temptation itself is not a sin. It's what you do with the temptation. There are certain temptations you just, you just can't help them pop up. But what you do with it is going to determine whether you're sinning or not. Uh, and so recognizing what temptation is and then trusting God to get you through it and looking for the way out delivers you from sin um, rather than embracing it and saying, oh, I have to go down with the ship because I started thinking bad thoughts, I have to go all the way. And that's not true. Anytime we see we're on the wrong road, C.S. Lewis said the quickest way uh, off of it is to turn around. Uh, that repentance, turn back to, to God, trust God, and, uh, and he will get you through it. The psalmist prayed this in Psalm 19. says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You know, so it is a sense of deliver me from um, sin, from temptation. Allow me to be innocent um, and, and ultimately to bring glory to God. I didn't mention at the beginning, we do call this the Lord's Prayer, but this is the prayer that Jesus taught 
on how to pray. Um, and so traditionally we call it the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, and that's fine. But this is actually the pattern prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, the high priestly prayer of our Lord that he was praying. And, uh, and in that, he prays for you and I. Um, and in John 17, 15 through 17 says, I do not ask that you take them, believers, out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That um, he gave us a pattern to pray, and he is our mediator who is praying for us, that we will resist sin, that we will be safe from the evil one, and he's given us a tool, his word. Sanctify them by, in truth, your word is truth this sanctified sanctify him in our hearts hallowed be your name sanctify us and who, who he is his name his character and our lives that we need to be in the word of god and i forgot to look up the i recently heard it and my memory fails me to to give you the accurate details but um recent studies have been showing that uh reading the bible once a week doesn't change much in your life Twice a week, not not so much is better than one, but not. Uh, but it, it takes when you when you start getting f- consistently four days a week or more. Radical changes begin happening in people's lives. Their their temptations go down, their struggles with um, different afflictions go down. Like their their thought life changes, their attitude changes, their desires, their prayers increase. The beginning at four times a week the disciplines of the faith begin to happen. Uh, Jesus said this in John 14, says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, Loving him is the way to obedience. It is in spending time. Uh, John 15 says, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. It's the abiding nature of being in the word of God and communion with the Father uh, and uh, living, uh, that leads us to living out just as fruit of our life. It's not something I necessarily intentionally am going to change all this. I just go to Jesus, learn to love him more, and allow him to change all my life to, to glorify him. And so this, uh, this, this prayer that we have here is a beautiful pattern. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of a prayer. It's an invitation for us to be relational with our prayer, to be transformative, but also to be practical in our daily lives. And it's something that we can do all the time. So let's let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you so much again for your word that you are our Father who's in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that you would set yourself apart in our thinking. Help us to see you more clearly, fully. Lord, that we would see your your holiness, your justice, your your kindness, and your your compassion. Lord, that that would motivate us. Uh, to change our lives, to be in conformity to you, Lord. Help us to um, seek your will and your kingdom, to live it out in obedience in our lives and encourage others, Lord, that we might see your gospel go throughout all the world, Lord, that we might long for the return of Christ uh, and then live, live into that, Lord. As we wait for your return, Lord, we pray for daily uh, provision. Lord, the reminder that we need you each and every day. We thank you for the abundance that we may have. Uh, Lord, but do not allow our abundance to to distract us from our need for you 
each and every day. Lord, help us with our relationships with others, Lord, that we would forgive others as you have forgiven us, that we would see the great sacrifice your son gave for us uh, so that we could be so richly blessed and forgiven, uh, Lord, and then do the work in our hearts that we might honor you in the way we forgive others. Lord, deliver us from evil, from the temptation, and allow us to, to live and, and confidence because we're walking in step with you. And so, Lord, even as we lift our voices once again in prayer, may your name be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name.